Hey there, folks. Matt Hunsaker here, welcoming you back to the State Tax Show. Today is part three in our series on state and local tax issues in M&A. Get ready to dig into apportionment and unitary combination. Welcome back to our series on M&A transactions. In case you're new to this, part one covered the process of an M&A transaction from a deal lawyer's perspective. Part two was a fun little discussion of nexus considerations in entering into M&A transactions. And today we will be discussing apportionment and unitary combination issues. For you indirect folks out there, Please stick with us. We're just going to hit the high points today. Apportionment considerations are a lot like the nexus considerations we discussed last week. When you acquire or dispose of assets or entities, that's going to change your footprint, so to speak. For example, if you either sell or buy a business unit's assets, you are probably going to have property, payroll, and maybe sales that you didn't have before. And that probably means a change in your apportionment profile. What I mean by change the apportionment profile is that you're going to affect at least one or more of three inputs into income apportionment. One, your income, because the new or discarded business units are going to change your net income, for better or worse. Second, the addition or removal of a business unit could, in many cases, change your in-state property, payroll, and sales. And finally, the transaction is probably going to change your everywhere property, payroll, and or sales. You know, I, I guess a simpler way to say it is that your income will probably change and your apportionment factor will either concentrate or dilute in given states. Let me give you a real-world example. I really need a chalkboard for this, and I know you're listening, so I'm not going to use any numbers. I had a taxpayer that needed to replace an antiquated factory in State A that it used to produce its, well, for confidentiality, its widgets. Almost all of its sales were in State A, which used a three-factor property, payroll, and sales factor apportionment factor. The taxpayer had the option of just replacing its factory in state A by rebuilding from the ground up. That would have kept its tax pretty much the same. You know, maybe it would have gone up a little bit because the property factor would probably increase with the more valuable new factory. But essentially, same result as before. But it just so happened that another company wanted to sell off assets that would have been just perfect for our taxpayer but those assets were in nearby state B. Now, state B had a single sales factor. So forget about all of the business aspects and the federal income tax implications of this transaction and just take a look at the state income tax implications. Which option would you choose? Build a new factory in state A or buy a suitable factory in nearby state B? If you said state B, you are probably going to be right in most cases. Now, why is that? Well, 
your tax in state B doesn't change. State B only looks to sales, which stay the same regardless of where you locate the factory. State A, on the other hand, looks to property as part of the apportionment factor. But now you have eliminated the old factory from the property factor, kicking it out of the numerator, and replaced it with the state B facility, which dilutes your property factor because your factory is no longer in the numerator. The diluted property factor then dilutes your apportionment factor, which in most cases means you pay less tax in state A. I hope I didn't lose you in that example, but here's the upshot of the whole matter. In any asset transaction, you have to carefully evaluate the interplay between how income changes and how your apportionment factors change. And this really needs to be part of diligence, early diligence. For example, and I have so many examples, but I'll just give you one more. I had a taxpayer acquiring a very profitable business unit operating in state C. Essentially, they're buying the entire business except the shell of the legal entity itself. The taxpayer looked at the returns and saw how much tax the entity paid, and it was fairly modest for the amount of income. So lots of profits on one hand, little tax on the other hand. Sounds like a no-brainer of an acquisition, right? Well, the only problem was that when you drop those very profitable assets into the acquiring entity, which had a huge state C apportionment factor, suddenly the amount of tax on the profits of that business segment went through the roof, and it almost didn't make sense to do the transaction. All right, that should be enough examples for now. I think you get the point that you have to model these things out and understand the post-transaction apportionment profile before you enter into a big M&A transaction. I'm not going to talk about the apportionment considerations of actually acquiring a separate legal entity, because I think we covered that enough last week when we talked about the Joyce and Finnegan approaches to apportionment in combined groups. So let's shift gears and talk about unitary combination. Last week, I got ahead of myself and talked about the idea of instant unity or the age-old question of when does an acquired entity gain a unitary relationship with its new parent? Go back and check that out in last week's episode if that topic interests you. Along these lines, one of the big mistakes that people often make is assuming that a wholly owned or majority owned entity is unitary with its parent. Sure, some states presume that wholly owned subsidiaries are unitary, and that's because they very often are. But there's a lot more to being unitary than just ownership thresholds. You have concepts like uh, functional integration, economies of scale, vertical integration. I don't want to make this an episode on unitary combination, but just understand that with some careful planning and documentation, you can often keep a target out of the combined group if that produces a better result. Say, for example, apportionment in a Finnegan state. This is easier if it's just a financial acquisition, an investment, say, in the private equity world. It's a lot harder, though, if it's a strategic acquisition that furthers your business. Say, for example, you acquired the supplier of materials for your main product. In examples like that, it can 
often be very difficult to plan around whether or not the target becomes part of the unitary group. The final thing I have to say, at least today, about unitary combination in the M&A context is what to do with net operating losses. Anyone who has had to look at this for a big transaction knows what a nightmare this can be. That is because states are really all over the map in how they handle NOLs. Some just carry forward an adjusted federal NOL. Others apportion the NOL in the loss year and then carry forward a separate state NOL. And this complexity goes through the roof when you bring a loss entity into a new combined group. Ideally, you want to be able to offset losses from one entity against income of another entity in the same group. I mean, that's just great tax planning if you can pull it off. I say if because states may apply an NOL limitation rule either by adopting Internal Revenue Code Section 382 or some similar loss limitation rule that is meant to prevent shopping NOLs. To make matters worse, some states may use a Surly concept, that's short for separate return limitation year, to prevent or limit a combined group from using the losses of a target entity to offset group income. I still have PTSD from learning the Surly rules on the federal side decades ago, so I'll spare you from it from an in-depth discussion, at least for now. But if you are acquiring a loss entity, be ready to work through these rules. That should be enough M&A for today. I didn't really intend to do a full series on this. It just sort of happened. And now that we are up to our necks in it, we might as well finish it off with one more episode. But I think you're going to have to wait at least two weeks for it. You see, I have a very special treat for you next week. And that's all I can say for now. So stay tuned. Until then, this is Matt Hunsaker for The State Tax Show. The State Tax Show podcast is produced by Baker and Hostetler, LLP, and is for informational purposes only. It is intended to inform our clients and other friends of the firm about current legal developments of general interest. Issues discussed should not be construed as legal advice, and listeners should not act upon the information contained in this podcast without professional counsel. In some jurisdictions, this podcast may constitute attorney advertising. The hiring of a lawyer is an important decision that should not be based solely upon advertisements. Please visit BakerLaw.com for more information about our practices and experience.